Hi and welcome to the uh, latest Dishcast. What a fun run we've been having. And this week, for all sorts of reasons, I've invited Julie Bindell, who's a writer in England, uh, written for a whole bunch of places, including The Guardian primarily. She's a journalist and a radical feminist, as she has proudly put it. Um, Her campaign has long been against male violence, specifically with respect to domestic abuse and the right of women to self-defense when being attacked by their male partners. And that's been a, a pretty big theme of her career. She's also gotten into trouble lately by being not completely on board with the entire transgender ideology um, or critical gender and queer theory that has come to dominate the gay and lesbian and transgender movement such as it exists. Julie, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Um, Thank you, Andrew. I wanna, Lovely to be here. I want to ask you something I always ask everyone here, which is to talk about where they grew up um, and how that affected them in their lives. How did that set you on the trajectory that uh, you're now on? We were roughly the same age. We grew up uh, in the same country. I was in Tory, Sussex, and you were somewhere else. So tell us about that. I was somewhere else. Um, I was in um, Labour Party stronghold, Darlington, which is the northeast of the country of England, very working class, on a, a social housing estate, I suppose the closest thing to the projects, but not quite. I went to a comprehensive state school, sink school, we call them. Oh, what's Very school? bad school. A sink school. Oh, like bog, was, like worse than bog standard. Yeah, worse than bog standard. When we were expected to fail, um, the teachers were going through the motions. There was heavy criminalization of the boys on the estate, house burglaring, car stealing, theft, lack of opportunity. Um, it was it was tough. It wasn't the worst, but it was pretty rough. And I think, I mean, to answer your question specifically about how that then shaped my life, growing up with a father who worked a horrible job. He was a steel worker, so worked with hot bars of steel, loads of injuries, no kind of health and safety in those days. Margaret Thatcher was destroying the mining industry and the steel industry, and we were really badly affected by that in the 70s when I was growing up. My mother had zero contract hour work, which you know was, was really grueling. And, you know, we had no opportunity and very little, I suppose, um, hope for the future that we would do anything other than for the girls marry one of the boys on the housing estate fairly young and have two or three kids at least. And then kind of replicate what your mum had had to do, have very little freedom. And of course, the boys would grow up into to men who would work in the manual trades and we wouldn't go to university. So with that kind of level of machismo in the playground where the boys were trying to assert themselves to get any kind of power that they could in society and recognizing that the girls were beneath them in status, that made it tough. And the girls of course would police other girls in a way that meant anyone who remotely digressed from the norm, anyone who didn't talk about fancying boys, 
wanting to grow up to be an heir, steward, um, or a secretary, or some other um, classic kind of working class job, we were seen as freaks. And I was seen as a freak because I didn't want what the other girls had talked themselves into wanting. Now, this, of course, is you know not a not unique to your particular part of Northern England. I mean, it's 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 a global phenomenon. Um, why do you think? And this is something that I really wanted to get to. Why are boys and girls so different? Because well, this is obviously a formative part of you, and you you were you were you were attracted to girls, right? So uh, was it a purely political hostility to the way men had been? Uh, acculturated to believe in, 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 in what they believed? Why are boys and girls different? Well, it's a good know, question, right? It's a very good question. <laughs> so obviously as a feminist, uh, and trust me when I tell you, radical feminists here are very different to your radical feminists there. Yeah. Tell, tell okay. us about that. We, we don't hug, we don't hug the moon. We don't hang you sanitary towels um, on railings to celebrate womanhood. Um, we don't want to live on women's land separately away from men. We don't consider men to be, well, to, boys to be born inherently bad and girls to be born inherently good. We believe in social construction of gender. We know that there are sex differences that can drive certain things. Biological difference matters, of course, but it's not destiny. So we, we believe in political change we don't believe in um, a spiritual kind of view of the world. We're, we're rooted in material reality. So we see the difference between boys and girls primarily as being that boys are given privilege at birth for having a penis. I mean, literally. The penis itself isn't the problem. But the privilege that they're given for being biologically male is the problem. Give me an example of, of that early have. privilege that you observed that, that was entirely privileged. It was not, you couldn't see it as uh, an expression of the key sexual differences between behavior between girls and boys, men and women, which are, which mm. are universal. Um, what, I want to try and focus on the distinction between that and what you call privilege, because it, it's, it's, it's kind of an important distinction to make, I think. I think it is, and actually I've come to hate the word privilege as it's used I today know, i do too when it's attached to white privilege and you know these terms that are meaningless so i suppose i mean privilege over and they might not know that they have it so you asked me for a concrete example and you know i have i have one that is so clear in my mind from when i was about three or four years old where i was dressed in some stupid skirt and trust me, this isn't a kind of you're born a lesbian, you reject skirts, you know, or you're a trans boy, you know, you. this is an unnatural feeling. Skirts, acrylic skirts, horrible pleated acrylic skirts, nobody in their right mind wants to wear, <laughs> including a three-year-old girl. And trust me, if you're wearing them with tights, that really is not a good feeling, okay? So I had to wear this skirt I had to go around in tights that felt scratchy on my legs. And this is because girls aren't supposed to have bare legs. And I wasn't in a family of religious fundamentalists. I mean, we were just regular, fairly atheist, working class people. The boys were running around in jeans and shorts and they were being teased about the girls fancying them. Whereas we were being told as girls, 
don't go out dressed like that. Don't do that. Don't sit on his knee. Don't play with him that way. Even at three or four years old, girls were being told that we had to conduct ourselves properly or we would be seen as sexual beings, slags, whores, even at that age. And boys were being congratulated. And one of these boys... Congratulations for what? I suppose for growing into what they hoped would be very fertile, sexually active boys. And today, of course, the version of that is that they might wear T-shirts with tomorrow's pimp or so many girls, so little time. Whereas girls are wearing T-shirts with daddy's little princess. And it was really obvious that our freedom was being curtailed. Clearly, this is retrospective. I wasn't thinking like this at three years old. But that feeling of being uncomfortable in my clothes, not wanting to wear what I was wearing, being told I had to sit nicely and behave properly when the boys were running around getting dirty and having what looked like great fun, to me, just said it all. Is that because you were more interested in boyish things as a a girl than most girls? Was it a kind of uh, affinity with that kind of messy, scruffy uh, kind of activity? I'm just curious as to how your lesbianism your lesbianism sort of began to emerge out of this i'm just curious about the psychology of of how this evolves um i was interested in freedom i suppose mm -hmm. i I wanted to be able to i mean i had two brothers so i had one older and one younger Mm. and there wasn't a huge amount of age between us so i had something to compare it with so i wasn't growing up with sisters where i was looking at them thinking why are they getting more freedom than me I was looking at these boys who were given more food at the dinner table, who were not asked to clear up after themselves, who were told they could go out and play and come back dirty and not be looked at as though they've done something terrible that would bring shame on the family. And that was just normal for working class girls in the 1970s. This was, I didn't have strict parents particularly that were very traditional. My mum was, was, you know, definitely more open-minded than a lot of women on the estate. But in terms of my lesbianism, I wasn't born fancying the midwife. You know, I don't, I don't kind of have this idea that we're born uh, with a gay gene. I don't think that kids have a sexuality until our puberty starts to emerge. I think that we, we have crushes, we have love or, or affectionate attachments um when we're when we're very young and i think that every single heterosexual woman that i know now had that so it didn't mean that this was an emerging lesbianism for me it was an emerging feminism i think because i saw what freedom could be and i wanted it yeah do you think this is uh, this was a parallel throughout british society at that point middle class upper class as well as working class or this something particularly working class I think there's something particularly working class, to be honest. I think that sex as an issue, sex class as an issue, is is, is huge. Um, and it's what feminism is based on, looking at how women are a sex class in relation to men are a sex class. But we never talk about actual class right. and how that feeds into the lack of opportunity as girls that we had. Now, when Kimberly Crenshaw who coined the theory of intersectionality, which has been bastardised to fuck and back now by the Blue Fringe Brigade. When she developed that, she was talking about a black woman, an African-American woman, who was also 
um, working class. And, and of course, you know, that, that, that intersectionality of femaleness and, and, and blackness was really crucial in the way that she was treated. But if you look at the way that girls, whether they are white, black or of color at all, have their freedom and opportunities curtailed as girls, it's quite startling to me that middle-class feminist academics don't pay any attention to this hardly. They only look at working class women as relates to our sex and freedom or lack of it when they're talking about us going to prisons, getting into trouble, early teenage pregnancies, violence, that kind of thing. They tend not to look at how this fits in with the curtailment that we grow with and that we face all the way through our lives. You say this and we, you know, we're now, we're now in our 50s um, to be nice and vague about it. And, uh, and I look around me at, say, the West, at Britain and the U.S., and it's, surely it has been an astonishing success story the last 30 to 40 years, that in the U.S. now you have clear and rather big majorities of women uh, in colleges and grad schools. You have a, a, a dramatic narrowing of the pay gap. You have more women employed than men. Um, you have... Many women in public life uh, who are making a real difference. I mean, a, a, in ways that would never have been thought of before. Whenever I mean, Trump is an, a, re a reactionary counterexample. But we, we, in our lifetimes, Julie, there's been extraordinary victory for women's yeah. equality, dignity, and women's capacity to transform our society and to and to and to generate jobs and to create this economy. I mean, and it feels as if the economy is moving in such a way that actually does increasingly benefit uh, people who are much more interested in dealing with people than people who are interested in dealing with things. And in most of the personality analyses of men and women, it's just the things, it's just a generalization, it's not, it's not everybody. But in general, men tend to gravitate towards dealing with things. They're not really good with people. And women tend to be a little better with people than things. And that's – so haven't we shifted a little bit? Isn't the uh, – mm. isn't, isn't the uh, – and to what extent does feminism, I think, get trapped by uh, excessive pessimism about what's happened and what could happen? Well, good question. Feminism, to me, is one of the great successes um, – of of modern times yeah because of course you can see material change but you can also see the change in women as for example in the uk in 1991 because of feminist campaigning we criminalized rape in marriage and before that a man could rape his wife and you couldn't actually criminalize him for that mm. which interestingly um fed into the kind of narrative that if he quote unquote sodomized his wife, he could be criminalized because of course the stigma around what they saw of course as gay sex should never sully a marriage bed, right? So, so when women realized that they could actually report their husbands to the police for rape, it also made them realize that they had a right to say no. Now, often men won't listen and crimes were committed and damage was done but it created a huge sea change, as did criminalizing certain acts of domestic abuse. For me, feminism has to be a utopian movement. Mm. 
Because what we're imagining is an end to male violence, an end to the sex trade, an end to the early marriage of girls, female genital mutilation, all of the abuses that come because of the sex that we're born into, because of patriarchy. And that if you actually took away that power, and if we had a truly equal society, there wouldn't be male violence. Men aren't programmed to rape and harm women and to take pleasure from it. So for me, feminism is the most optimistic movement on the planet because we imagine men to change, but we also know that boys are not born programmed to do this. So we can see that utopian vision. Let me give you just one word, testosterone. Now, when we look at, for example, murder rates or criminal rates in the United States, I mean, it is 90 to 10 a lot of the time when it comes to physical violence, when it comes to uh, assault, murder. Uh, and the obvious, and this is true across all cultures, across all history. And surely the primary reason for this male aggression, which really is about aggression, is that, we, that men are biologically programmed by testosterone to be to be protectors to be uh, aggressive to be to be more violent they're the they're the enforcers of territory uh, through natural uh, selection they've become we obviously have a a division of labor in this respect which will make men much more susceptible to commit violence um, is the, when you say utopia I think you're right because it would have to mean that men would stop being men and there's there's a huge number of ways in which you can tame men in which you can condition men to be more responsible to be more grown up to be mature often by appealing to their maleness rather than than than, than just yelling at them and telling them to be better human beings isn't that just isn't that a natural and I use that word uh, real a natural impediment to utopia and if and if that is going to always be the case no one's defending it but just let's look at it as brutally practically as we can yes one should do everything one can to prevent that to stigmatize it to punish it but we're never going to have a society in which men are going to be less violent than women or even anywhere near as 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 subtle as as women in that that's not to say that women aren't as aggressive in other ways and can't exercise power in many other different ways, which, of course, they historically also have done. But surely we have to take this, 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 this hormone, this extraordinary hormone, into account. What do you say to those people? Yeah, well, a couple of things, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, I've never had testosterone. Um, you know, I've often wondered what it would feel like to take a hit of it. You have a little. And I know that... I'm, yeah, I mean, all I have women have a little some, bit. But, yeah, but a hit, but a hit of it. Yeah, you know, and, and and I know it's a very powerful drug, and I'm sure it's responsible um, for lots of teenage boys' angst and furious wanking, and whoever you know knows whatever else. Um, all good, and of course, you know, men are more likely to be harmed and killed by other men than are women by men. But what we need to look at in order to pick apart the role or responsibility of testosterone is male on female violence. So, for example, sexual violence. We hear constantly justifications for men paying for sex with women who clearly don't want to be in those brothels on those street corners, that they want more sex. They, they, they need sex. Their balls will drop off if they don't get it. They need more sex than do women. Therefore, they've got to look at how they can get what happens with the surplus. Now, that's actually bullshit because these men 
are saying, if we couldn't have sex with that woman in the brothel who I know doesn't want sex with me, and we call that rape in any other circumstances, I'd have to go and, and these men have said this to me directly, I'd have to go and rape a real woman. In other words, that they can't keep, keep it in their pants, that they have no control. I don't believe that of men. Of course, it's what your right hand is for. Of course, there may be variants of sexual desire. Women also have sexual desire, um, much more than men often give us credit for. But with testosterone, this can be, um, of course, an answer to why men often, you know, want to, to fight each other. Perhaps it is. In which case, how does that actually, how does that work with the level of sexual and domestic violence that women face from men. This isn't about fighting. This is about a sadistic, brutal bullying and men having been taught, I would say, to take pleasure from women's submission. And there's nothing natural in that. Yeah, you mentioned the protector side of things, that men have been nurtured or that testosterone might even have a role in that. I, I would refute that. But who knows? I don't know. But when um, you look, when you watch, say, uh, Planet Earth or something, and you see these different species, and you see that the, the narrator says, well, now the male is going to go and defend the territory, and the female stays home, sitting on the eggs, and this is part of the reproductive strategy of this species. You can just imagine David Attenborough saying this. Do you say, fuck that, it's patriarchy? And, <laughs> and it what? but there... <laughs> But Who would say fuck that to David Attenborough? I mean, well, nobody no. would say. <laughs> well, we, we would be very polite about it, but we'd say, excuse me, Sir David. Um, but do you see my point? That at some level, there is an underlying natural reality, on top of which mm. humans, because we have these giant brains and are constantly thinking and being self-conscious and understanding ourselves, mm. uh, can see that and attempt to restrain it out of moral uh, concern. Um, and, and you can see, if you looked, for example... I mean, this is, I'm now playing completely devil's advocate here, but, but for example, the Muslim position that we cover women up from head to toe because we're completely insane and, and we rape anybody, we could see a little inch of flesh. Now, this is not unusual in the history of the world. This is actually more the rule than any other kind of egalitarian or sexual egalitarian society. But it is a way of acknowledging that the male sex drive is much higher and differently constructed than the female sex drive. So when I look, you look at the lesbian and gay world, right? So there we have, we're taking out the heterosexual situations. We're talking about, um, and the, the sexual activity in the gay male world is simply unknown in the lesbian world, at least anything like that uh, level. And indeed, higher than in the heterosexual world. Why? Because they're all fucking men. There's nothing to stop them. And, and, and if it's, it's, it's very easy. So that seems to me uh, to, 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 to emphasize the natural stuff. I'd also say this about, I mean, maybe the two of us are uniquely unsuited to talk about heterosexual relationships. But <laughs> nonetheless, I also notice that, that lesbians um, can also have quite intense emotional relationships and intense fights. I mean, intense anger and, uh, I mean, I'll be going up to Provincetown. They have a baby dyke week, they call it, uh, which is a fun week in which all the, the young, it looks like a, a, a sort of sea of boy bands, essentially from a distance if you squint your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and the one thing that we know that weekend is that there'll be fight, there'll be lovers quarrels, there'll be tiffs, there'll be fights. These, mm -hmm. young, these young dykes are, are feisty. 
and I've seen I've seen some great I've seen some great lesbian um, sagas of that nature. I mean, the old joke, of course, was always, "What does a lesbian take on her first date? Yeah, her cat and her toothbrush." <laughs> Because of the intensity that starts off with it. Well, the whole version of it is, what is, a, what is a lesbian take on a first date? It's a U-Haul. And then what does a gay man take on a first date? And they say, what, 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 what first date? Or, what, what, sorry, I yeah, fucked yeah, that exactly. up. I that, well, it's, it's a second date. It's a second date they have. Um, but so surely that tells us the power of nature, the power of these forces that we, we need to control, obviously. But one of the things I find very frustrating about some contemporary social constructionists is that not that obviously social constructionism doesn't have an incredibly important point, but it's, it's always combined with the, our, our nature, the, the way in which we're structured as humans. Um, and for example, in the old days, they would say, well, this male violence, we know it's we know it's there. We know we can't really change it. So let's let's make them beat the shit out of each other in rugby or or football. Let's get them all into sports to kind of siphon that off, to get let off that steam, um, or let us appeal to their ability to protect their own, to see a woman as someone to be cherished and defended, who cannot defend herself physically and therefore needs the man to protect her. Uh, I think those are not completely unreasonable, practical responses to male sexuality. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, you see it. I mean, I see it from the straight man's point of view, too, that, 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 that you know, it's, it's, it's difficult being a man in so many ways, especially now when, when in many ways some of the virtues of our culture are militating against um, the traditional male, male values. Well, traditional male values are one thing, and I mean, looking at some of the um, the misogynists in in sheep's clothing that pass for so-called leftist men at the moment, that are screaming at women, calling us turfs and cunts, and telling us to shut the fuck up and burn the witch because we refuse to capitulate to having our prisons overrun with uh, male-bodied sex offenders, for example, then in some ways I would far rather men like my brothers who treated women with respect, but are very old-fashioned patriarchs in that they think that they, they should take care of us physically because we can't take care of ourselves. Many of us can take care of ourselves. And, and this is something that I think girls need to, to, to be taught, not that we're responsible for our safety at all, but that we do have muscles and we can use them. But aside from that, look at examples such as Rojava, uh, Kurdistan, where the women's army is leading the way in the fight against ISIS. And all kinds of examples where women are saying, we actually can't wait for men to come and defend and protect us. So we'll do it ourselves. I was in Kenya in the Samburu desert a few years ago reporting on a women-only village where the women had just decided to move away from their villages where the girls were being married at 12, where there was FGM rampant, rape was rampant, and the women were treated as lower than the goats and the cows that they, that they kept. And so they decided to just set up themselves. Now, this is very different from the kind of cultural separatism um, that the womb bins, as we call them, uh, what do you suggest call them? womb bins so that womb you don't bins? have the... Oh, women? <laughs> so, so, I'm sorry, I can't, I mean, the, the, the words get increasingly bizarre. What, uh, exactly. But, the, but no, but this was a, a kind of old cultural feminist 1970s and 80s. Um, movement that said we've just got to move away from patriarchy rather than fight it, rather than reform it, rather than get rid of it. We've got to just go and live and howl at the moon. 
And, and I do think, of course, that biology matters. And, I, and that's why we have evolutionary biologists who are looking at human progress and who are saying, yes, but we're not. But we're not those creatures that procreate and that's all they do or they eat their young or, or, or cats that rape female cats because, I mean, so what? So animals do that. That happens. But we're human. And we are distinct from the rest of the animal kingdom because we can, we're critical thinkers uh, and we do evolve in that way. And so I, I do think, yes, testosterone and biology uh, matters. And it matters because, of course, women procreate because women have the babies. Right. It's a very fundamental and, biological fact yeah. that to produce the next generation, women have to have to go on, undergo at least a year of se severe uh, uh uh, incapacity, uh, at least dedicated, and that's that's obviously biology. I mean, what I find fascinating about what what you're saying, as opposed to what some of the contemporary left feminism is saying, is they say biology is meaningless. Everything is constructed. That that there's if you say you're a woman, you are a woman. That that the, the notion of 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 biology, of estrogen, of testosterone, of gametes, all these are relevant. Everything is a everything is a, a construct. You're saying no. No, we are different. We have very different – we have – hormones are very different. They create a whole different way of life, they a whole different way of thinking about the world. Um, uh, but let me ask you this about the, the, the transgender issue. Um, the, the most uh, wonderful and sane transgender friends of mine uh, who are not crazy ideologues, uh, but they do say quite clearly that – and I believe them, let me tell you that uh, – that – uh, we're talking now about. I'm talking now about MTFs, men who become mm -hmm. women, which is, seems to be uh, uh, n not exactly the majority anymore, but nonetheless, still, still a phenomenon. And they say something like this: "My brain is female. My body is male, uh, and I don't can't explain that in a way that I couldn't really explain why I grew up being attracted to boys and men. I, I don't really know. I mean, and I, I'm not sure we could come up with an explanation. We're a variation upon a theme. Uh, variations are allowed. Uh, evolution mm -hmm. progresses through trying out variations. And these variations have lasted a very long time. So maybe there's some point in them. But uh, so uh, how would you... Someone like that really, they say the brain is the biggest sexual organ. The mind is my body. Uh, I want to be treated as a woman. Uh, and I don't think you're against the recognition of, of, of MTFs or FTMs into the new gender that they wish to be identified with. Is that true? Or, or you know, you, you have no problem with that. But it's, it's situations where you're completely ignoring the biological differences that you have a problem. Is that, is that, is that the case? Is that, am I putting that right? Look, I think male, male behavior towards women, aggressive and sexually violent male behavior is learned. Mm. And we can we, we we condone it and we give permission and we excuse it and we blame the women and girls we look to the women and girls for it happening a police officer said to me once and i'll never forget it those girls that go out and get themselves raped and murdered and i said to him wow they have to be quite ambidextrous to do that <laughs> yeah, it literally is that kind of extreme but we've, we've made a huge amount of progress in that i mean we i know really have, i know massively. recently in london particularly we've had we've had this this awful phenomenon of women alone at night being attacked and and and, and the police seeming to be clueless in their response to that but but well, nonetheless this is, this is not 
you know, what one woman every three days is killed by a male uh, partner or ex-partner. And that's been the case for as long as we've kept the records. You know, we call it femicide because it's the act of killing a woman because she's a woman. And, and, and of course, you know, the, the, the women going out late at night and being at risk is nothing new, but women are more at risk in the home. And when police tell us to go home to keep safe, why the fuck should we have a curfew on us? But the curfew on violent men and make sure that occasionally they are called to task for what they do to us. But in terms of the trans uh, women who might say, look, I've got a female brain and I just know it and it's a feeling, we can't base a female sex, a female identity uh, on a feeling. I could not tell you what it feels like to be a woman. I have no idea. All I know is how I'm treated in society as a woman. We know there's no such thing as a male brain and female brain. Yes, of course, there are differences in our brains um, across all kinds of, um, of, of, of different populations. There are differences in the brains um, of people who've been uh, traumatised, who've been raised in poverty. Yes, but generally speaking, experiences. in the general population, when you do... Your classic, and this is a there's a lot of scholarly literature, literature on this on psychological traits. I'm talking about the the the, the studies that find that 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 the the difference in choice between men and women in professions tends to actually grow greater in more developed, more 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 uh, egalitarian societies than in more less developed. Partly because uh, there's so much sort of mandatory labor in factories and places that men and women do similarly in those countries. And as you get more developed, and as you, people can have a much more variety of choice of the kind of things they want to do in their lives. And that we, that we don't see an end to gender difference. We see actually uh, a slight, a slight uh, exaggeration of those gender differences. And my view is that it's all fine. As long as everybody's choosing what they want to do, it doesn't matter to me in the slightest if one field of activity is dominated by men, another field is dominated by women. This is going to happen. Uh-huh, we shouldn't uh-huh. panic every time it happens. We should, sure. we should we, if, if it seems... Uh, and, for example, let me bring up the, the question of STEM, which is a big, big thing. Women should be uh, represented in technology, uh, in science, and many are doing extremely well, but they find that there's a, a, just a lack of desire to go into those industries partly because what are you doing you sit in front of a fucking computer all day long coding you have to be a sort of slightly autistic male to really enjoy that kind of stuff similarly giving up your whole fucking life for a job which is what happens when you get to be up the higher echelons of these so just living in the work is something that women in general are smarter about they don't want to live like that um some do but in general there are these differences and i i is that something that worries you or something that's fine by you? Um, is, it, is, it a, is it a failure? Uh, if, if the incomes are different, does that, is that a problem too? Do we need to equalise those things? Tell me. Well, I'm not an equality feminist. I'm a, a liberation feminist, so ah, I don't strive. Interesting. I, I think equality is a liberal project. And what we're saying is give us what the men have got. We want to be able to do that too. And I think that, you know, we need to transform society. If we're looking at any liberation movement, we're looking at the nuts and bolts of how we got there. So I don't agree with you on um, the fact that men and women are so vastly different. I think there are differences in the way that we have to organise, for example, who has the babies. We don't have any choice about that. We do have a choice about the way that men are discouraged 
from caring for their own children, yeah. from taking paternity leave, from actually being nurturing. They are discouraged because it's stigmatized. And women are encouraged to breed, to go through what I think must be a life of hell in having to raise children for no good reason whatsoever. Someone else is going to always have them. So, so I'm not, the, the one distinction I want to make is Judith Butler has absolutely come in on a very um, solid argument made by early feminists and she has bastardized it. She has twisted it and taken it to an absolute extreme. What early feminists said was that we recognize there are sex differences, biological differences, and they matter, but they matter way less than you think. But what we said, what those early feminists said is, gender is a way in which women are oppressed by their biology. So biology is one thing. The gender, in other words, the sex stereotypes that we impose upon women is therefore what does for us. Now, what Butler has said is everything's a social construct. Yeah. Nothing has any material reality. Well, that's clearly barking mad because, of course, there's something distinct about a female sexed person and a male sexed person. But we give it way too much weight. And no, of course, I don't care if women want to sit coding all day. I don't care if men want to do it or not. I think maybe an autistic woman might enjoy it just as much as I'm, an autistic I'm sure man. she would. But, but there are very but really, there are many fewer autistic women than there are autistic men, which is another interesting fact. Or, or maybe there's more boys who are diagnosed as autistic when we're talking about different kinds of behaviour and they're being overdiagnosed. So I think everything can be seen through the prism of patriarchy and feminism. But that doesn't mean everything can be solved. It doesn't mean that we're always right, but I think that we need to stand back and look at why there are such perceived huge differences between men and women. Because I don't agree with you that they are so vast. There are male friends of mine who would be perfectly unrecognisable um, in in polite society as anti-sexist men. They don't wear Hessian slippers. They don't go around with a papoose with everybody else's baby um, doing childcare all the time. They're not all softly spoken and following the stereotype of a 1970s kind of anti-sexist man. They are regular human beings who have decided that they want to be actual human beings as opposed to patriarchal you know fucking machines or whatever that that's it's up to them why they want to kind of unpick their the excesses of their masculine traits and feel very comfortable in doing that because they recognize they've been in a bit of a straitjacket all their lives with sex stereotypes and being bullied by the kind of tougher boys and um we see it in in the gay in 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 the gay community we see it everywhere and and i don't think there are vast differences but i think that there are huge differences in the choices that boys and girls men and women have and if we are honest about the choices women have then we would really unpick this stuff about well of course girls want to grow up to be x y and z whereas boys are much more likely to want to go for these other professions girls have very few choices compared to boys even in today's society in the west where we have absolutely made great strides the problem is of course in the us and the uk and, and across europe across much of europe it's the glass ceiling that people are concerned about i'm concerned about the women in the basement not the women who aren't earning a million dollars a year i mean it matters that they're being paid less than their male counterparts but i care more about the women 
at the bottom because feminism has to reach them or we will or equality is meaningless let me let me ask you what would be a criterion a way of judging if we hit you described it as a utopian project to start with that means that it could never happen uh, no, no, utopia literally utopia literally means nowhere uh, and and but uh but, but what i'm trying to say is how would you judge if you'd succeeded i mean it seems to me for example you can say in 2021 we're light years ahead of where we were in 1962 when you were born uh so at what point do you say and this goes for all different social movements the gay movement for example at what point do you say well we've kind of resolved some of the core issues here uh, humans are the way they are, and they're going to be a bit like this. We can avoid the excesses, but now we're kind of done. When would you ever say we're done, and how could you ver- how could, what would you point to to say we we're done? What what would be the case? Well, I would take my lead, I think, or use as an example those that campaign to end child poverty, or to end child cruelty, or to end child neglect, or to end racism. They have in mind that they will end racism that they will be able to feed all children everywhere. Well, those are two very different things. go hungry. The idea one can end racism, one can end the human being's natural propensity to suspect and dislike people who look different than them, that seems to me to be completely perverse. That's just never going to happen. Because that's who we are. That's what we were built to be, suspicious of others, suspicious of other tribes. We've had 200,000 years of this baked into us. Now, we can prevent outrageous examples of it. We can prevent in the law obvious acts of such discrimination. But the idea you're going to reform the human soul and mind and psyche seems to me to be, be, be uh, I mean, this is why in the end I'm a conservative. I just don't think it's possible. And I think sometimes the attempt to do it can lead to all sorts of excesses that, that could be do more harm than good. I mean, that's the basic conservative position. I want progress. I want men and women to feel completely as free in their society as each other. I really, really do. But I, I sometimes think that the, the standards we use, absolute equality, identical behaviors, uh, this is not, this, it's, it's just not even conceivable. Or it's certainly not achievable. And I don't see why we want to achieve it. Don't we like the differences? So- so you're a you're a harm reductionist or a harm you're a, you, yeah. you believe in harm minimization and I believe in and I'm an abolitionist right so so that's that's I think the, the the difference and see with feminism and when you fight male violence you really have to be an optimist because what we're told is that this is ingrained um, in boys, that boys are programmed to want to rape and harm girls. And we don't believe that. We never well, have. Look. We do not have that pessimistic view of, of men, of masculinity, of boys. Or we couldn't do what we're doing. So feminists have to be optimistic because we have to see that we can change something that is so ingrained and embedded within every society. Um, so, no, I'll never stop because, you know, I'm 58. So, uh, of course, I'll be dead before um, the last man rapes. And so, you know, I'll always have a job. Yeah, but let me, let me push them. You, you're a little tough on men here, a little bit. I mean, obviously, rape is not a routine behavior of most men. And, and the vast majority of male violence is conducted against other males, of course, in horrifying ways. Uh, are you not overly exaggerating this i mean and there are uh in some ways as i said the 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 
the, the trajectory of economic uh, development seems to be favoring women. The complete extraordinary success of women in the West, particularly in the last couple of generations, has completely proven feminism's basic assumptions correct. There's nothing that women can't do. But there are things that women prefer not to do, and there are things that many men prefer not to do either. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't mind the fact that the society is, is, is sexually somewhat bifurcated. <clears throat> I, I, I think it's just part of who we are. And uh, as long as people aren't specifically denied access to certain opportunities, um, I'm not particularly concerned about radical equality in absolutely mm -hmm. every respect because it's just no, that's not my that's not my thing that's not my thing i mean i i think that you know i i'm a global feminist so i travel a lot or i did before the the virus and i would go to country after country after country meeting with women who are activists in those countries hmm. from pakistan to yemen to south africa to Ukraine, wherever, there are always terrible things happening to women. And I'm never short of a story, an investigation, a campaign. And those women would tell me what's going on in their country. For example, in Uganda, I went there to do a story on levels of violence against lesbians. Because we do hear a lot, rightly so, about the levels of violence that gay men face in those countries, which are horrific. But lesbians started the, the gay rights movement in Uganda, and they're very rarely credited with it. So it's my job to uh, to, to write the stories that other people wouldn't write. Mm -hmm. And uh, and these, these women told me that, you know, they face routine punishment rape from men who take offense at the fact that they've sexually rejected them, um, that they are told that they are abnormal, that they're freaks, that they're perverts. I mean, these, these things were said to me as a teenager, and I was sexually assaulted uh, along those lines. But of course, it's way worse for women in a country that is ruled by a Pentecostal church that is so extreme in its views, in its absolute views, uh, about the sanctity of marriage, heterosexuality and, and women's status. And so when I talk to those women, I think to myself, okay, what is my priority or what as a lesbian and gay rights movement should our priority be? Is it um, rich gay men who want to get married and who are complaining that a cake maker in the UK, this is a story that you'll have read about, that a baker in the UK has refused to do their wedding cake because they don't believe in same-sex marriage. Should we prioritise that or should we think it's way worse for the, the women in Uganda? Well, actually neither because that's cultural relativism. So of course it matters that we're being discriminated against in the UK, but it matters way more that those women are in danger in Uganda. And then you go back to the pampered gay men and lesbians in the UK who are saying it's actual literal violence for somebody to say, I'm a Christian and I don't want to actually do a cake for same-sex marriage. Do you know what? Just get over it. This is not going to mean that you are homeless, that you are sexually assaulted, that you are stigmatised, that you lose your job, that you lose your housing. That battle, right, can be put on hold. It's rude. But so are the people that's, that, that comment on my tits when I walk down the street. So are the people that are arseholes to work with in the office. Deal with it, right? Don't be so fucking precious. Well, there is a level of, 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 of asset that it seems, it seems to me, for example, that most of the things that gay rights movement wanted to achieve, it has basically achieved at this point. And 
And there are institutional reasons why these groups want to continue because they have lots of money, they raise lots of funds. Right. It's what they do. It gives everybody the sense of, 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 of purpose, even though I think it's increasingly pursuing little, smaller and smaller goals. So, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more that if you look, for example, at the plight of lesbians and gay men in the world today, the people in the West and the U.S. and you are living in a, in, a, in a paradise compared to what the vast majority of human beings are living under. Um, and there is something just a little sickening about that <laughs> narcissism. And also the inability to understand, for example, that, uh, that, that in Britain, certainly a handful of evangelical Christians, you know, they also have a right to, to live and do what they want right. to do with their lives. And, there's, and that accepting other people's one thing that the gay rights movement used to understand was that we don't like forcing other people to do things they're not comfortable with. Right. We don't like that element we, of coercion. Let them be, leave them alone. You can mock them. Which is why, exactly, but which is why the the trans ideology in its extreme form, and I distinguish it from trans people demanding their rights, which they have to and they should, and I support that. The extreme trans ideology is about telling people, you will believe this, you yeah. will think this, you will say this, you will accept a male-bodied trans woman, convicted sex offender on a, on a women's prison wing and not complain and not say that you're nervous and not say this makes you feel bad. And it is the worst type I, I'm of told if bullying I, that I've seen. If I'm told if I don't want to have sex with an FTM who has a vagina, I am being a bigot. I'm not. I'm being gay. I'm, I mean, this is, this is what I thought I fought for forever and not having my sex life policed or moralized. By other people, right. I used to expect that from the religious right. Now I get it from from the LGBTQ fuckaduck left yeah. or whatever it's called exactly. at this point. Well, you know, when I was told that uh, the cotton ceiling issue, which is about trans women saying that lesbians deny them sex and isn't this all transphobia, um, you know, I, I couldn't believe this when I first read it a few years ago. And you you said earlier, Andrew, that I've been mired in this controversy for a short time. It's actually been since two thousand and four. Right. Um, so it's been a long time. But you've been but, a little. Actually, your rhetoric has been a little harsh, don't you think? No, I no? really no. I'm rude sometimes, but but no, absolutely not. I mean, when you think about what he's said to me and my feminist friends and colleagues and other women, which is literally die in a grease fire turf mm. and fuck you, you cunt, and you're too ugly to rape. No, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm just slightly rude occasionally. And I'll say things that perhaps get the point across without all the kind of dressed up politeness. But, you know, reading articles that young lesbians are also going to be reading, which is about how to have sex with a, with a preoperative trans woman, where we are literally schooled in giving a blowjob, but on the lady dick because it's attached to a trans woman, is outrageously um, homophobic. Anti-lesbian. Let's say it's, it's homophobic. Deeply, it's deeply anti-lesbian in every way. It's homophobic when you're told that not being attracted to a, a vagina on a trans man is. So why, and it's deeply insulting to trans people at the same time. So why have the, let's take the United States compared to the UK, why have the gay, is the gay rights movement, there's almost no dissent within it at all. In fact, the, 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 the media in this country regard any criticism of uh, aspects of transgender ideology as self-evident bigotry. The, the debate that you actually have had in Britain, I mean, it's come out in Britain in a way that it hasn't in the United States. Because the press 
in Britain is interested. Mm. It has a competitive open press. And they, I mean, you published in The Guardian, but increasingly The Guardian will not accept those kind of views uh, being printed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I choose, well, it's, I'm sure it's a two-way street. I, I don't really write for The Guardian anymore. I'll do the odd thing. I'll, I'll, I'll do something that only I could write. So I'll do something on prostitution in India, or I'll write the obituary of a second-wave feminist, or I'll do something that only I could do, but otherwise we don't like each other anymore. You know, they are so illiberal. They have treated my feminist colleagues like dirt at that paper. There is a, a culture of, of bullying and silencing of, of some of those people, not just women. There are one or two men who recognise that sex is material reality and that you should be able to say trans women are not women, but they are trans women and they deserve rights without being told you're a fucking bigot and a fascist and a why, Nazi. Why the extreme extremism there? I mean, surely you would think that the distinction between a trans woman and a woman, even though one would wish to recognise in the law and everything else, the, the which right we do. of that... We which, do. Of course, but, what, but the, the, the venom... I'm just yeah. trying to understand the venom. Is 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 it because this group of people, particularly fragile, particularly small, uh, possibly, I mean, understandably insecure, uh, and feels this is the only way to really assert their, or is it just bullying? Is it just bullying? Well, you know, if we distinguish trans people. Uh, which is the, the, just the majority of trans people who want to get on with their lives yeah. and the extreme activists that we hear that dominate this discourse. And it's trans women, not trans men. Um, then obviously it's not just because they're a small, weak group, because so have been women um, who are being uh, living under threat um, of radical Islam in Iran who, who speak out, but they don't have the same weight. They don't have the same... Uh, they don't use those tactics, they're not listened to, and they're way weaker than a lot of trans people, trans women, who, of course, have had male socialisation. You asked me about the um, the US. Um, I think that, that the problem is, the way it's, it's played out, is that, unfortunately, a lot of so-called liberals or social progressives in the States can't understand that what Trump said when he said, I don't want trans people in the military, is just straightforward old bigotry against us as well, against lesbians, gay men, um, and that this is his bigotry that also applies to trans people. Of course, the only people that got a look in about that bill uh, were, were trans people because lesbians and gays have, have ceased to matter because there's no we're not bringing any funding in for the big organisations like GLAAD or Stonewall or wherever. So the US can't seem to distinguish between Trump being a fucking bigot and harming, or, or rather threatening the rights of marginalised people such as us, and feminists who are on the left, such as me, saying, whoa, hold back, we can't have male-bodied trans women who are sex offenders in women's prisons, or psychiatric hospitals, or in sports, it's not fair and it's not safe. They can't make the fucking distinction. So the Guardian newspaper, which is becoming more and more um, US-based in its, in its values and editorial, don't want to upset their US colleagues. So they have joined in with this nonsense. And this is the only liberal newspaper we have, and they've sold women down the river, and they call us bigots and turfs. Why do you think the big increase in people in young people seeking gender transition has been overwhelmingly female seeking to go become men there hasn't been 
uh, these are the numbers out of Tavistock, there hasn't been a similar massive increase in the number of, of boys believing that they are girls and wanting to transition. How, to what do you ascribe that? Is it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it pent up? I mean, because there is a debate over here about what this means about lesbianism and how beleaguered there are 15 lesbian bars left in the United States of America. and you, <laughs> 15 more than we have. <laughs> well, part of it because lesbians more. don't go to bars very I mean, it's not like... And part of it's the internet, obviously. But nonetheless, there's a sense sure. that lesbians are very much in the background now and, and mm. uh, 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 not very hip or trendy or fashionable at all. Yeah. Um, is, is, is homophobia playing a part in the big push for transition for young girls? Sure. Um, I think that for many girls, opting out of womanhood is a really good opportunity. Mm. They don't realise what's coming for them, the testosterone, the double mastectomies, um, you know, the the, the life um, of, of um, hormones and surgery and the irreversible changes. Opting out of womanhood or girlhood is something I definitely would have chosen had I had the option. Mm. Also, there's social contagion because girls live online. Mm. And it's seen as way cool, way cooler than being a girl. The the level of of, of punishment pornography that's being um, that these girls are saturated with, they're learning to hate their bodies. It's like the new self harm, but it's a self harm that comes with a veil of testosterone that makes them feel invincible, and they are being validated by everyone. They're getting attention for the first time. Um, it's really grim growing up a girl, actually, even today, even in the West. And I do think that that, that is why so many girls are opting for this change. And of course, anti-lesbianism plays a part. When I came out at 15, the word lesbian was the worst word I had ever heard in my life. I, I thought it was a disgusting word. And I pretended I was bisexual. I used gay. We've reversed now with, with young women calling themselves queer or non-binary because lesbians are at the bottom of the pecking order because of our disgraceful so-called LGBTQQI whatever the fuck. We're going to have to start using Sanskrit <laughs> because we've run out of the alphabet because they don't give a shit. So, so yes, it's anti-lesbianism and I think it's social contagion and it's opting out of girlhood, which has become hell on earth because of the saturation of pornography and violent Im imagery that's been used against these girls. I want to end on a on a point which you've made, which I think is really rather uh, surprising to a lot of people, which is that you really think it's impossible for sex work to exist as a consensual economic activity. Uh, this puts you in the same position as some people sort of uh, who are religiously inclined or uh, people who really regard uh, uh, prostitution as a moral evil. Uh, you do think it's a moral evil, but not because sex is involved. Uh, it's because you think that every single sex act that's simply paid for is is a version of rape. Am I mischaracterizing your position? Um you know, I've interviewed a lot of sex trade survivors who've told me that it feels like paid rape, that they're not consenting, they don't want the sex, uh, and they know that, that the cash is the coercion. It's obviously not a consensual arrangement, but many women wouldn't describe it like that. Well, hold that. on, they cash is consensual, right? I mean, surely if you've agreed to provide a service and the other person has agreed to pay money, that is a that is a voluntary contract, right? I mean, that's under the law, certainly. You're saying that that no sex worker could possibly do that without violating her 
integrity as a human? No, no. I, I think that, that sex buyers violate uh, the inside of a woman's body when they use it as a workplace for one-sided sexual pleasure. And that if, I mean, the terminology sex work, if sex is work, then rape is merely theft. That the inside of a woman's body can't be a workplace because she experiences it as very differently to using your hands or your body for manual labor as we understand it. And my my understanding of this comes from the hundreds of women in prostitution that have been in at the time that I've interviewed that have left. You know, I've spent time in brothels, I've spoken to the Johns, I've spoken to the pimps, and we can't actually sell human beings as merchandise without it having a profound effect upon their sense of self. So rather mm -hmm. than looking at the woman and telling her, I don't tell women they've got a false consciousness, I don't ever talk to a woman who's had that direct experience and challenge her reality. What, what I do is I listen to the Johns and I listen to the women who've exited the sex trade. And I, I see for my own eyes, for example, when I was in Nevada, I spent a week with Dennis Hoff, who thankfully is dead now, who was just a, a, a vicious pimp who I saw demand sex from women in front of a camera crew and take them into rooms um, uh, to abuse them in his brothels where he used the women like he was in his own sweet shop. And he gave me permission to interview some of the women that were selling sex that had moved into this middle of nowhere hell that some of the women, one of the women called it a pussy penitentiary because they're not even allowed out unless they're with an assistant pimp. And I was told by this woman, she was loving her work. It was great. She had orgasms. It was fabulous. She made loads of money. Then she went home um, and didn't have to work for the rest of the year. And when I was leaving the room and I could have written that up as it was, you know, she was a happy hooker. And I said to her, look, your room is very, very sparse. You know, in my bedroom, I've got lots of things around that are my personal effects. And this is the room that she prostituted in as well as lived in. And I said, do you not have any of your nice things? And she opened the drawer next to her bed and took out a framed photograph of a beautiful little girl around eight, nine years old, showed me her, held the frame and said, this is my daughter but I don't keep it out in my room because I don't want those fucking Johns looking at her or touching her with their spermy fucking hands. And she put the photograph back in the drawer and closed it. And I thanked her for a time and I left. And I thought that told me everything I needed to know. If we talk about choice and about women making a choice, have a look at what other choice that they've got and ask her male counterpart why he's not in that brothel why he's not spreading his legs to take it up the ass from a John who smells and who may well um, be additionally violent to him so that he can earn a few dollars because he's going to have another choice even when he's on the, the last yeah, few dollars. Yeah, except there's, no, there's, no, there's very little demand except from gay men for male prostitutes. It's, 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 it's. But what you're saying, just to provoke you a little bit, comes sounds a lot like you know my Catholic upbringing, which said the human being has integrity as a whole person and you can't sell part of yourself. That, that, that it's the integrity of the human being. You have to, and that sex, you cannot simply objectify human bodies and treat them as objects. The, well, that is the at, core I mean, of the sin that I'm, I'm, I'm just I, it, sure. I'm trying to get at what you find morally. And I understand exactly what you're saying. From, 
from my point of view, like the idea that having sex with someone who wouldn't otherwise want to have sex with me feels or, a violation. It, <laughs> First of all, it also yeah. feels awful. How could you possibly you do that? You get it. Uh, it just you get fe- it. It just feels just really wrong. Yeah. Uh, so therefore, so therefore, uh, you you could ask yourself, and that's why I don't object morally, uh, or from a Christian or any religious perspective. I'm a secularist. I know you that, are. That's, that's my, just, that's my just, starting point. I'm just pushing your buttons but, here. No, 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 and it's good because, and I'm glad you raised that because actually, we need to ask what turns men on. Uh, when they are seeking somebody to have sex with who doesn't want sex with them, because they know the women don't want sex with them. I've interviewed enough of them to know this. But on the religious point, I find the religious um, perspective on prostitution fairly abhorrent. I think it's rooted in um, hatred of women's bodies, a moral objection to sex outside of heterosexual marriage, I think it's it it rests on the the Madonna and the whore dichotomy, and so therefore I don't work alongside those that wish to curtail my rights as a feminist, because those Christians that object to prostitution uh, in the way that you've just outlined would also object to my right to have an abortion, would object to my right to live happily and proudly and out as a lesbian, so so our paths don't cross. And sometimes there are some decent Christians who will say, look, this is actually about hardship and poverty and abuse of the women. And we want to reach out and offer them support unconditionally without making them read the Bible if they come and stay in our safe house. And that's great. Good. That was good. It, it was an but interesting no. original story about someone who came across a, a woman uh, who, who was caught in <laughs> adultery and was about to be punished and who said, hold on a minute, can we, can we stop this right now? <laughs> Um, uh, but I, 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 I think you're being a little hard because I think that there are there are there are many thoughtful Christians and not not uh-huh. not the most uh, sort of crude ones who do think of, for example, sex work as a way in which the integrity of the human person is violated, and oh. that's also the integrity of the woman as as a as a as a. And the one thing about these ancient religious faiths, and I mean, I think there are truths in many different traditions. And you can understand them as, but they are, and the same thing with this, the, the insistence upon marriage. I know we're going to disagree about this, but that it was designed to incentivize men to protect women, at least one woman. That's, and it was designed to constrict male sexual uh, by stigmatizing uh, going outside of it. And, and, and of course, it also hid a multitude of internal sins within it and all sorts of attitudes. But you can see it was trying to work with human nature as opposed to expecting human nature not to exist and, and sees the unique value. And, and this, this, what do you, th- and I'm just fascinated by this because in some ways it's sort of a kind of a reductionism and essentialism. At the same time, if I were asked, and this is, this is one thing I've talked to trans friends about, like, what is it like to be a man? I have a little insight because I had a, because of HIV, I had a low testosterone. So I, I, I went on testosterone supplements. So I had a kind of a little vision of what it makes. And it does make you horny as fuck. I mean, and you do objectify lots of things. And, and it's very hard to control, especially when you're young. Uh, when those things are going through those kids' veins and it's a very very powerful thing and that's why when we look at violence for example it 
peters out pretty quickly after age 30. And, 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 uh, men don't do that. And if you look at violence also, it's mainly men in that particularly highly testosterone period when they're not really in control of themselves. So I think some of these old and ancient uh, constrictions were designed to to rein that in, to protect women. Um, and I, I can see the downsides of that in terms of the condescension towards women. But is there something about being a woman itself that, 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 that there's something about it that contributes to our, our, our whole society, that there is, there is a kind of thing called womanness that, 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 that you, you can see and, and can value as a, as, as a thing in itself? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think we need to strive to be human beings. As I said, I think we we agree that there are some um, biological differences and um, clearly hormonal differences. What's really interesting, though, is for all these young women, and there are so, so many of them now, we're not just talking about a small sample. Here in the UK and in the US, there are huge numbers of young women that have transitioned who've been taking testosterone for years now. And interestingly, we haven't had reports of sexual assault, of battery, of the kind of behavior that so many people put down to testosterone. And I know you haven't reduced it to that, but what's that about? Why isn't there an epidemic of sexual assault being committed by these trans men that are on fairly serious doses of, of testosterone? That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, in some ways, how the debate does, ignores FGMs a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, doesn't it just? Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, for example, there's no no worry about FGMs competing in sports. I mean, th th there's no sense that they're going to have. I mean, maybe if their testosterone supplements go above a certain level, they can be. But essentially, no one's no one's winning contests because of their advantages in FGM. Uh, yeah. Uh, now you, of course, would say that's because these these the trans women are actually kind of still men in a way and pushing around and advocating for this stuff. Uh, actually, it's... do you know what I? Th I think to be honest with you, I think the problem with the sports thing, and it's interesting that people care much more about sports than they do about women in prison. Um, but I think it's more the opportunism, and and it's more the kind of unfair the unfairness of it, as opposed to those boys, young men who transitioned, who live as the opposite sex, who've been through surgery, um, who are on regular um, you know, doses of estrogen, whatever, and who wish to compete. What do we do about that? Well, that's, that's a good question. But I don't look at those trans women and say, you're cheating, you're opportunists, you just want to harm women, you just want to beat... You know, well, obviously, it's not true. It's, of course, it's yeah. not true, and it, there's still a question about fairness for those girls because, you know, those girls obviously want the opportunity to compete on a, a level playing field. But, but I, I don't think that trans people, um, who are the vast majority that want to live peaceful lives with human rights and legal protections, which they absolutely are deserving of and must have. I don't think that they are represented at all in this war. I don't either. I think that the, the, the people who are screaming from the rooftops are vicious misogynists and part of the men's rights movement, quite, quite frankly. And they're a very small group. And they are being egged on by the 
the the blinkered liberals in your country and in mine who think that this is the same as a, the right the, the the rights we fought for for lesbian and gay rights it isn't yeah I, there is a distinction to be made i think in, in in many different ways that is that has been structurally kind of eradicated in the debate in the united states to some extent but a lot of this is on a whole range of issues, it's old school liberals not having the balls to stand up to yes. much more radical people on their, I would say, on their on their left. Um, and especially, I would say, and this is, I think we could both agree, in, in questions of f- free speech and toleration and freedom of association and all the other things that liberals used to believe in that seem to have just been thrown away with this zeal uh, to, 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 yeah. to, to, to transform society. I don't, I don't know about you. I I don't mind gender. I, I don't mind men and women being different. I, I mm-hmm. certainly think there are ways I think individuals should be able to do whatever the hell they want. Mm-hmm. And I particularly worry about young girly boys, young boyish girls yeah. who are under the guise and under possibly the well-meant uh, notion that there might be a might be, might be the chance of a trans person in a in a kindergarten class. Well, it probably isn't right. because they're very very few. But they might be caught up in this. And and for yes. me, certainly as a gay man, it's very important to me that my maleness is acknowledged, that mm-hmm. I'm not treated as a pseudo woman, uh, and 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 that means that that our sex matters to us as gay people. And it, it can't does. Simply... And actually, I think we have a complicated relationship to gender. For example, you know, I've long, you know, as I say, I came from a working class community where many of the lesbians in those days, those that were brave enough to be out in public, in the bars or wherever, were butchers hell. Yeah. I mean, there were butchers and femmes. And although, you know, the feminists, myself included, would look at that as aping heterosexuality and aping male and female roles in the traditional sense. Well, yeah, it kind of was. But so what? Because I at least could recognise a lesbian when I saw one in that butch kind of stance where she was wearing a shirt and tie, playing pool, being a bit leery with the women harmless and fun in lots of ways and we would joke about the women you know we'd be saying gosh she was so but she could have kick-started her own vibrator you know all those kind of jokes that kind of thing and the sissy men that we hung out with who'd be borrowing our clothes that we didn't want to wear but our mums and dads made us wear them so we've always played with gender in the lesbian and gay world and I think it's fun for many of us I just don't want to be told I have to do it and like you I don't want to be told I'm really a boy if I want to go around dressed as I dress as an everyday lesbian yeah you will you will not find a more grotesque exaggerated form of masculinity than in a leather bar for example Uh, (laughs) yes um (laughs) And that aspect of homosexuality and lesbianism is, is, is again, totally obscured by the mainstream. They don't see that. They don't see mm-hmm. gay men asserting their masculinity as part of their identity. It always has to right. be some sort of subversive and feminization of male. It, it isn't. Yes. Uh, it's, it seems to me lesbians and gays should be the most emphatic about sex as a key mm-hmm. concept in our understanding of ourselves. I agree. Uh, and then we can play with gender whatever way we want, uh, and yep. we should. Uh, again, that's hard to get through because most people that are more interested in sex and gender being aligned tend to be on the right. And there's this sort of, you know, this 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 sense that, yes, we have a right to that, but we also have a right to to our masculinity as well. Uh, Julia, I could talk all day with you. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. Thank you for... 
just engaging. I think every time we can have some kind of reasonable conversation about these subjects, we help yeah. slightly lower the temperature. I mean, you and I disagree oh, yeah. about a whole bunch of stuff, um, but I can see where you're coming from. Uh, and uh, more power to you. Um, certainly, uh, I hope you don't feel find any more constraints on your speech and your ability to put your message out there. And it's been a, a great pleasure to meet you and to, to hang out. You too. You too. And I'm so delighted to have been on this show. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Andrew. You bet, Julie. All the best. You take care. Bye-bye.